0: Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. Every two weeks, we discuss a different housing research paper, translating it into non-expert, non-academic language to better understand why we face the challenges we do and what can be done about them. My co-host today is Pavo Monkinen, and our interview is with Professor Jacob Faber of NYU. This time, we're talking about the legacy of redlining, and specifically the association between the Homeowners Loan Corporation and segregation. The Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, is responsible for creating the infamous racist redlining maps that many of us are familiar with, and which Richard Rothstein further popularized in his 2017 book, The Color of Law. Professor Faber finds that the places where Hulk created these maps saw a sharp rise in segregation between black and white households compared to places where Hulk didn't create its maps. And that effect has persisted all the way to the present day, more than 80 years after Hulk was established. That association is really interesting and really important, but it also does raise questions. Hulk was a short-lived organization, and as work by Amy Hillier and others has shown, Even though it created maps based on racist assumptions, it actually lended pretty broadly to black households. Other agencies, including the massively influential Federal Housing Administration, seem to have developed their own racially discriminatory practices independent from Hulk. So why are the places mapped by Hulk still so segregated compared to the places it didn't map, even though redlining and similar discriminatory practices spread nationwide and through so many other avenues such a long time ago. We get into that debate in this conversation, and in echoes of our interview with Kathy O'Regan, we talk about some of the human consequences of this racialized geography, and what responsibilities we're left with as the inheritors of federally institutionalized segregation. This is an interview that raises as many questions as it answers, But they're questions we should all be grappling with a lot more, so it's absolutely worth your time. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and you can contact me with questions or research paper ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu or on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. Now let's talk to Professor Faber. Joining us this week is Dr. Jacob Faber, Associate Professor at New York University's Robert F. Wagner School of Public Service with a joint appointment at the NYU Sociology Department because we love our sociologists on this show. We are the third or fourth on here so far, I think. The paper we're discussing published in American Sociological Review is We Built This, Consequences of New Deal-era Intervention in America's Racial Geography. And this paper looks at how practices institutionalized in the 1930s by the federal agency, the homeowners loan corporation, continue to be associated with segregated cities and neighborhoods in present day America, almost 100 years later. So, Professor Faber, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk about this. And I, I, I feel obligated to note that uh, we are holding this interview under protest from Mike Lenz, who... <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my presence is the protested <laughs> part. He was, he was
1: mad that I got a firminer on without him. So, but, yeah, or, yeah. Or we could just say, he says hi.
0: Yes, that too. It's, it's not a sincere protest, yeah. but he, he regrets that he cannot be here. Hi, Mike. So we'll, we'll start off how we always start off. Tell us about where you're from, where you live. Uh if you were giving us a tour, whether it's New York City where you're at or somewhere else you consider home, what would you want to show us?
2: Yeah, I um I love this question. I I so I live in New York City and I think that's where I would say I am from. Uh I was born in the city but grew up in Northern Jersey, but I've been back uh in New York now for about 15 years. And I am a lover of food and you know Food is the thing that I am most excited to show people. Um, <laughs> you know, New York, to be honest, has really kind of ruined my ability to enjoy <laughs> travel to a lot of places, just because of how good good the food is here, uh, and it's you know it's so diverse also that you can find uh,
0: just incredible variety in the type of food um so where are you taking us for hand-pulled noodles yeah where where are we going yeah
2: yeah so uh one of my absolute favorite restaurants is a a thai place in queens uh, in woodside called Sri pie and it is you know it's at the top of every like you know best asian food or best thai food in, in new york city lists and it is just transcendent uh, it <laughs> does not taste like any other food that I've had before. And we went there after, um, my kid got her first COVID shot a couple of weeks ago. And it felt like, uh, it was the first time we had been there since the start of the pandemic and it, uh, hit outside, but it was still just incredible. Um, so that's, uh, a, a must see or must eat, I suppose. I'll put that on the list.
1: And wait, so is there a better hand-pulled noodles than Xi'an's Famous? I mean, that's the... Yeah, the uh,
2: it's a good question. Um, I, I love that place too. Uh,
1: and there's one just a couple Man, blocks from I, it, where we live. It, it was, and I, I was thinking the other thing you said would ruin travel for you. But for me, it's like then you, ha, you can go to the most special place for a certain dish. And like it, it gives you a new appreciation, right? Because even yeah. in, in New York, maybe the hand-pulled noodles are not as good as they are in Xi'an.
0: So I don't want to bury the lead here. So I'll kick us off by sharing the major finding of your article, which is that you find that cities where the homeowners loan corporation assessed and graded neighborhoods using their pretty infamous redlining maps, these neighborhoods and cities are more segregated today, almost a hundred years after the agency was created compared to similar places where Hulk HOLC did not create these maps. And we'll get into what all that means in more detail. But since the history of Hulk and these other New Deal housing market interventions is really integral to understanding these findings, I want to start there. In the introduction, you write The Homeowners Loan Corporation, Federal Housing Administration, and GI Bill created the contemporary US homeownership society, but largely excluded people and communities of color from affordable mortgage credit through explicit and implicit means thereby reifying racialized neighborhood boundaries. So what problems were these programs trying to address um, and how did they actually work? And I think we can probably focus on Hulk and the FHA since these came earlier, starting in the 1930s, whereas the GI Bill came a little later, starting after World War II.
2: Yeah, so I think most of the time when we talk about the Great Depression, we Talk about it as an employment crisis, uh, and it certainly was—you know—the worst employment crisis in in American history, probably. Uh, but it was also a housing crisis. Uh, you know, at, in 1933, about half of mortgage debt was in default. There were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who were losing their homes uh, due to foreclosures and evictions, and really just enormous amounts of of Americans who were. Um who were homeless, and so these policies, especially Hulk, were designed to kind of stabilize the housing market, uh, which was and remains a, a a big part of the economy uh, and also as a as an employment program to kind of encourage housing construction mm-hmm. right right So Hulk was part of the nineteen thirty three um, homeowners Loan Act. Um, And the program bought distressed uh, residential mortgages from from private lenders and then refinanced them with the original borrowers on easier terms. Um, So kind of helping people at risk of foreclosure or already in the foreclosure process to stabilize their uh, their credit obligations. And then, uh, FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, came to be as part of the National Housing Act just a year later in 1934. And this was a, uh, a mortgage insurance program run by the government to replace the private mortgage industry, mortgage guarantee industry that, um, had collapsed with the, the fall of the housing market in the early 1930s. And it required mortgage lenders to offer mortgage terms with longer time periods, lower interest rates, and lower down payment requirements that were previously available on the market and because of these changes, uh these uh, these requirements owning your home or uh, holding a mortgage became much cheaper than renting in many in many parts of the country. And so you know, we really have these programs to thank for the Contemporary Home Society. They are responsible for you know, institutionalizing and making making quite common the long term fixed payment mortgage and uh, this financial instrument lifted, you know, tens of millions of Americans um into uh into home ownership. Um and this became the primary tool for for wealth
0: accumulation for most Americans. Right, right. Yeah, To we have it to thank or or to blame. Sure, in, yes, in right ways. to blame, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I realized I didn't really write about this in my notes, but uh, I kind of took it for granted that people would, would know what redlining was, but I don't think we should assume that here. So can you just talk a little bit about what the redlining, where that concept comes from and, and what role Hulk and FHA played in that? Yeah,
2: yeah. So, so now that the government is concerned about mortgage lending, they are concerned about lending risk. Uh, and so they hire appraisers to go to hundreds of cities across the country and assess the lending risk in neighborhoods within those cities. Uh, and they based those assessments on a number of different characteristics of the neighborhood, including the existing housing stock, proximity to environmental hazards or parks, uh, as well as the um, the characteristics of the people who lived there. So, um, mm-hmm. well, uh, you know, the income of people there, the uh, migration status, as well as uh, race. Uh, these appraisers were obsessed with the presence of, of Black people. Um, a single Black person in your neighborhood could guarantee you um, the lowest grade, which was a D, these uh, grades went from A to D, with A being the highest grade and D being the lowest grades. And appraisers used these maps, uh, use these grades, excuse me, to make maps of these cities. These maps were uh, then called residential security maps, and it became harder to get mortgage credit in D neighborhoods, red neighborhoods over the subsequent generations. Um, and this is where the term redlining came from, because they were literally drawing red lines around poor neighborhoods,
1: um, uh, black neighborhoods, um, uh, and the like. Mm-hmm. And I had a follow up question about this. is also off off script, but I'm I'm very curious to know about the appraisers themselves. I wonder if you, in your research, looked into that at all. There's been a lot of good work, historical work on realtors, like the you know Page Glotzer's book and. Uh, Laura Redford and I wonder if I mean probably in some cases they were the same people or were the appraisers kind of coming from the from DC to these cities or were they already kind of people active locally in the real estate market?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. So we have some historical record of the business of appraising for Hulk and for FHA, um, but a lot of it, a lot of the pieces are missing. Um, we know that appraisers coordinated with local real estate concerns to assess risk. Mm -hmm. But we also know that appraisers, you know, received extensive training from Hulk and were supposed to be able to just be dropped in any city um, and Mm -hmm. successfully able to appraise neighborhoods within that city. Um, Of course, that's not how anything works. uh, And (laughs) I'm sure there was quite a bit of variation in the stringency of neighborhood appraisals um, across appraisers, but mm-hmm. you know, I think that there, are, this is
0: still a question to be uh, answered. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, maybe we should walk through a little bit how this redlining actually could cause segregation, and then we can talk about what the consequences of that segregation would be. So we have these red line districts, these D grades and these C grades. How is that actually preventing? You know, black households from moving into white neighborhoods, uh, discouraging white households from moving into black neighborhoods, and so on. So, you know, the top line impact was that it became
2: um, harder to be a homeowner in redlined areas, especially if you were a person mm-hmm. of color, uh, but also uh, for for white people, uh, it became easier to be a homeowner in uh, neighborhoods that got the best grades, the green grades, um, and so. This kind of pulled people in kind of both directions um, to segregate neighborhoods and, and
0: cities and towns. And, and you've done a lot of work on the consequences of, of racial discrimination and segregation in the housing market, including how communities and households are you know, ultimately impacted by it. Could you give us just a quick primer on some of those consequences? Like, what do our neighborhoods look like today, at least, you know, in part because of these uh, government interventions? And how have people been actually harmed? um, And how do they continue to be harmed by the racial geography that you describe in this paper? Yeah,
2: so this is a great question. I mean, these programs were a long time ago, and there's been a lot of change since then, um, and quite a bit of variation in the trajectories uh, of neighborhoods. But on average, the places that were redlined almost a century ago are still marked by disadvantage today. So they are tend to be places of higher levels of racial isolation, um, higher poverty, lower home values and ownership rate, lower mm-hmm. rates of intergenerational economic mobility. Contemporary mortgage credit is harder to get in historically redlined. Places And it's more expensive when it is given. Um, and there's even some research, uh, not done by me, but connecting um, the legacy of redlining to vulnerability to climate change. That redlined, historically mm. redlined neighborhoods are much hotter uh, than, than neighborhoods that got uh,
0: better grades. Yeah, we'll have to link to that paper in our show notes. Uh, another line from your paper that stood out to me is, is this. New Deal housing programs certainly did not invent segregationist mortgage provision, but they institutionalized the practice and implemented it at an unprecedented scale. This is a point that Richard Rothstein uh, also drives home in his book, The Color of Law. And in that book, he also quotes Sherilyn Eiffel, who says something to the effect of, as a society, we enjoy privileges and freedoms that we did not earn, that were secured by our predecessors and ancestors, And that means we also carry responsibility for the harms that were imposed or not addressed by our predecessors and ancestors. I'm curious if you have any of your own reflections on what it means for us to have institutionalized these practices through government programs and policy and what kinds of obligations that might impose on us that a less institutionalized system might not.
2: Yeah, we too often equate responsibility with Blame, um, which mm. makes people defensive, you know, especially in our conversations around race and the history of race. Yeah. Um, but let's say I stole a thousand dollars from you and gave it to my kid, who took that a thousand dollars and invested it in a mutual fund. Uh, you know, fifty years later, that thousand dollars has appreciated quite a bit, and you know, my child has more wealth than your child. You know, assuming you have a kid in this example, of course. And, you know, let's go another generation forward. Let's say my child used the wealth they accumulated to invest in their kids' education, their kids' entrepreneurship and homeownership. Um, You know, how should we be thinking about the difference in success between my grandkid who benefited from my theft um, and your grandkid? You know, what if we go another generation forward? How much has that initial $1,000 grown? not just in the form of financial capital, but also human capital, uh, like education, Mm -hmm. investments in health, etc. I think most people would agree that my descendants should compensate yours in some fashion in this example. And this example is just within, uh, you know, my family and your family. What happens when a government enacts a policy that has uh, intergenerational consequences for inequalities? What if, the federal government took that $1,000 from you and gave it to me. And, you know, there are plenty of government decisions that were made well before I was born and most of, well before most of your listeners were probably born that we are still paying for today. You know, the, the Korean and Vietnam Wars were fought decades before I was born, but my tax dollars still support the pensions of people who fought in those wars. Um, so to me, there's a, a moral responsibility to right the wrongs of the past. And this this research um, that really exploded you know, documenting the long term consequences of this federal redlining and it really underscores the importance of of reparation. Yeah. And, you know, there is also a, a powerful cultural impact of these policies, which is even harder to measure uh, these policies through the appraisal process. Conflated race with lending risk and and property value, thereby you know linking whiteness to to wealth accumulation through uh, this really powerful uh, market mechanism that encouraged segregation and I don't even know how we go about measuring the impact uh of these policies on racial animus you know these policies that legitimated and institutionalized racism wrecking havoc on you know, virtually all
1: aspects of, of American life. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, I yeah. think, and these are the things that it's much, much harder to measure, right? It's kind of how this conflation between race and property values like plays out in so many different ways in society.
0: Yeah. And, um, I, and I think that point about, you know, imagine this one generation forward, two, three, four, not only does it illustrate just how how big the effects can be, but as you go forward in time, and the the you know space between when things started and, and where we are today grows, teasing out like who's benefited, who's been harmed, how you you know shift resources just gets more and more difficult as well. And I think we're in that place now for sure. Yeah, definitely.
1: But uh, let's talk about some things we can measure. I guess. So I, I mean, I, I would compliment this paper, especially. I'm teaching a class on on zoning for equity that has a lot of history in it. And so I, I thought this paper was really useful for that class to connect kind of 100 years of history. Um, and I compliment the painstaking data work that, that went into to doing this research. Um, so, you know, the basic idea is looking at places that were appraised by Hulk and places that weren't. And kind of how did that affect their segregation trajectories and levels of segregation today? So can you maybe talk about how you came up with that idea and how, how you went about making it happen?
2: Yeah. So, you know, ideally, I would have used longitudinal data sets with the same measures of race and the same number of measures of municipal boundaries and neighborhood boundaries from before HULC was implemented all the way through today. Uh, and unfortunately, those data don't exist. Um, so I pulled together data from almost a century's worth of decennial censuses. Uh, and you know, measured segregation on the city level for, as you said, places that were appraised and places that were not, and kind of compared the trends over time. And many of your listeners might be thinking, okay, well, there maybe was something inherently different about places that were appraised uh, compared to places that weren't. And there were differences, and, and appraisal was not random. The federal guidelines requested. Residential security maps for cities with at least forty thousand residents, but there was um, quite imperfect implementation uh, of that guideline. You know, Mm -hmm. we know we have maps, for example, of entire counties that include a number of uh, towns and cities. We have maps that were drawn for sections of metropolitan areas that include, again, multiple cities. And so, there are a lot of cities that overlap with these residential security maps, these redlining maps that had populations below forty thousand, and there are also a number of cities that um do not that we don't have maps for that were above forty thousand. So what I also do as a as a robustness check is to compare the impact of Hulk over time within a number of subsets subsamples of cities and towns that were around this 40,000 cutoff and of just below it and just above it which again includes a mix uh of small cities that were appraised and large cities that weren't mm-hmm. um and you know admittedly this rests on a non trivial assumption which is that all cities near the cutoff were at risk of being appraised, um, which is admittedly mm-hmm. a, a large assumption, but I, uh, you know, I think that the the results are pretty um, compelling and consistent, so I, I believe yeah.
1: them. Yeah, no, and even if they're you know thinking about other re- thinking about the reasons that one city would have been appraised while a similar city wouldn't have been appraised, I think no matter what those reasons are, the differences a hundred years <laughs> later are, pre- are pretty striking, right. Right? Um, right? But and so on that, have you? I wonder what you think about kind of why some cities that were bigger weren't appraised. And I mean, I I understand more why some smaller cities were if they're kind of caught in a county or in a metro area that, that had a larger kind of appraisal catchment area. But kind of these larger cities that weren't appraised or, you know, the role of local actors in seeking appraisal, because that was kind of the first thing I was thinking of is, you know, if you have these segregatory places asking for this uh, redlining maps to be drawn, maybe that, that could be one explanation.
2: Yeah, we know, thanks to work by historian Nathan Connolly, that uh, there were um, instances where local real estate concerns uh, tried to manipulate the appraisals uh, for the purpose of um, real estate speculation. So, you know, if if you were a real estate investor and you could convince mm-hmm. the Hulk appraiser to give a neighborhood a lower grade uh, that would make accessing these federal programs more difficult which would increase foreclosures and therefore reduce property prices making it less expensive for you to buy land mm-hmm. um, uh, in those places but uh, to circle back to your your question I you know we really don't know uh, this could just be uh a complete accident of history. It's possible my data have errors in them. But for example, you know, we don't have a map for Washington DC, which was definitely bigger than forty thousand people in nineteen thirty, but we had we don't have a map. Uh, and because of the secrecy uh that Hulk and later FHA kind of exhibit around their practices which we can talk about later, you know, it's it's possible that there was a map made for DC and we just, it was just lost to history and we just don't have it anymore. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, it's possible that there are a number of cities in my data set that I have coded as not graded that um, in fact were. And, you know, whether or not the historical data exists to, figure that out um, is, is, is an open question. Maybe they're sitting, you know, maybe these maps are sitting at the, at the bottom of a, of a dusty box in some basement somewhere. And we just, Mm -hmm. we just don't know.
1: Right. Or the archival retention strategy was to destroy them at some point. Yes. Yeah. Which would be very unfortunate. What can you give me a sense of in, in 1930, there were 5,000 municipalities incorporated cities in the country or and and how many i don't know if that's true i'm just guessing and how many how many for how many did, did you have maps and kind of how many are in your uh study sample
2: yeah so there were um about kind of 200 cities that were mapped that we have maps for or that okay. um kind of overlap with with maps right and the the number of cities in my sample varies a little bit from year to year based on census data availability you know census data is was good in the uh, early 1900s because we have access to the complete counts mm-hmm. you know, on the individual level, and then the data get bad in 1950 <laughs> and 60, and then they get better again in 1970, uh, 80, 90 and, and 2010 um, and so I have you know a lot of cities in the sample, several hundred and then fewer and then uh, and then many
1: more hmm interesting. Yeah, so I guess moving on to the kind of outcome of interest in your paper, which is the kind of level of segregation. Uh I'm used three different I'm a, I'm a big information theory index proponent, but you, you I, I like also using it? multiple <laughs> indicators for uh for a phenomenon. So maybe talk about the pros and cons of the three different indexes you use and why you you chose to use three.
2: Yeah, so I used uh, these three different mes- me- uh, measures which are among the most commonly used measures of, of segregation. The Isolation Index, which measures the typical neighborhood percent Black for a Black resident within a city. Um, The Dissimilarity Index, which measures the percent of either Blacks or whites that would have to change neighborhoods, have to move for there to be an even distribution of that group uh, within a city. Uh, And then the Information Theory Index, which measures... Unevenness by comparing the diversity of neighborhoods, in my case tracks within a city to the uh, the overall diversity of that uh, of that city. And you know, ideally in in social science, you'd like to have a number of different ways of measuring the outcome you care about, um, because every me- measurement has has limitations. And, and these measures of of segregation um, uh, have a number of limitations, like they're Somewhat sensitive to the racial makeup of places um, as well as the choice of geographic unit and you know, perhaps most importantly, none of these measures are uh are are spatial um they're all kind of aspatial measures of, of of segregation, so they you know thankfully <laughs> thankfully for you know professionally all the the results all point in in the same direction um, and mm-hmm. there are, are no real differences across um, any of these measures.
1: And maybe before we get to the results, I'm I'm curious how you think about kind of what I see as kind of a, a challenging, complicating factor, which is the role of municipal boundaries in metropolitan-level segregation and kind of the, ch- you, you, the choice you made to measure segregation within a municipality rather than kind of metro areas where more of the places were Hulk-mapped compared to other metro areas where fewer of the places were Hulk mapped?
2: Yeah, this is a really uh, excellent question and something that I continue to struggle with uh, kind of empirically and theoretically as well. You know, a lot of the segregation literature analyzes metropolitan areas, so like a city and its, its suburbs, um, because those geographic units are usually drawn to capture like an entire employment market or a, a housing market. Uh, mm-hmm. And when we think about the way that, say, se- the kind of form that segregation uh, uh, typically took in the middle to end of the 20th century was a uh, a very stark, like, city-suburb split. Mm-hmm. and uh, And so if you measure segregation on the metro level, metropolitan area level, you will get higher estimates of segregation than, than I did. Um, when I, so I measured on the, the city level or the place level uh, where, and places and cities tend to be more homogenous than metropolitan areas, which is why their levels of segregation tend to be lower. And again, I have I kind of really struggled with trying to figure out what was the right geography for, for measuring this um, because again, of this city suburb, Dynamic, especially I think you know, moving past Hulk and into the Federal Housing Administration, which you know was was really ramped up suburbanization. I feel Mm -hmm. like my paper really misses that whole story. But the choice I was I was really kind of forced into this choice because of because of identification strategy um, that Mm -hmm. uh, you know trying to identify uh, a causal effect on on the metropolitan level felt like was was much more difficult given the the nature of of hulk maps you know i'm trying to challenge that uh, that assumption of mine um, a bit in in more recent work but you know i think i would i would love to figure out a way to understand the kind of total effect that these, um, that these policies had on, on, on segregation, which, again, my
0: estimates probably understate. All right. So we shared the very high level findings at the very beginning, uh, but I do want to get into those in more detail now. So, you know, it, it's one thing to find that the cities that were appraised or mapped by Hulk are more segregated than unappraised cities. But really, the scale of the difference between these two groups um, and the statistical significance is is really impressive. And, you know, you, you were kind of humble in saying maybe the data is just not there. The maps are hidden away somewhere. But I do think just based on the statistical significance here, the the amount of maps that would have to turn up that have the opposite results of the ones you've already looked at, it would have to be very large to kind of overturn your findings here. So for each of these measures of segregation that you looked at, what were the results here? So just to use the numbers uh, in the paper, the
2: average white-black dissimilarity, isolation, and and information theory indices were 12, 16, and 8 points higher, respectively, in places that were appraised compared to places that weren't, again, on average across all of the post-Hulk years. And you know these numbers don't really mean you know they don't mean anything in, in the abstract, but they are in the you know the world of, of segregation scholarship really quite large differences. The isolation gap indicates that compared to black residents of ungraded cities, black people in graded cities live in neighborhoods with a uh, a twelve percent higher. Uh, excuse me, 16 percent higher black population uh, share on average, which is a pretty big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And And that's percent, not percentage point, right? Yes. Percent. Yes. Okay. Um, Right. And, you know, in in terms of the dissimilarity and information theory indices, um, you know, one, another way of of thinking about the magnitude uh, of these effects, cities. so, So segregation along these two indices has been declining since about, you know, since 1960 or 70 and cities that were appraised were are, are remain um effectively two decades behind cities that were not appraised um on both of these mm-hmm. these indices um so that's that's a lot of uh a lot of difference
0: What do you think the mechanism or mechanisms are by which these appraisals are contributing to this increased segregation, and not just you know this sort of almost immediate increase? in the 40s and 50s, mm-hmm. but then this persistent increase that has lasted in, in many cases to the present day. You know, the association between these things, between the appraisal and the segregation is is very clear and the magnitude of the difference and the statistical significance speak for themselves. But what's the story for how Hulk's involvement may have actually caused or contributed to this increased segregation? And I'll kind of combine a few questions here. Because I think what both Pavo and I have in mind here is is this is some other papers that have come out over over the past twenty re- years, really starting uh, or at least including Amy Hillier's paper looking at Philadelphia and and Hulk there, and more recently work by Fishback, Snowden, Rose, and Stores, which found that Hulk itself actually loaned pretty broadly in black neighborhoods. Um, so, how does that all fit in together? What's the mechanism? Just curious to hear your, <laughs> your <Easy> reflections <laughs> on this big picture,
2: right? Um, so, you know, first there is a ton more work needed here, as you know, especially on the relationship between these Hulk maps uh, and Hulk's inheritors, like the FHA and the GI Bill, and and so in in some way, it's you know, I could kind of easily and sort I kind of do this in the paper, kind of handwave. The mechanisms. Um, but, you know, there are likely or were likely a, a, a wide range of mechanisms, including kind of limiting access to neighborhoods and towns uh, for primarily people of color. So kind of forcing people to live separately. Uh, also penalizing whites who lived in mixed race neighborhoods uh, with lower grades. And then you can think about the Second-order consequences of this limited access to home ownership uh, and its implications for racially differentiated wealth accumulation. So, um, you know, if you can't buy a home, then or can't buy a home cheaply, then it, you were unable to accumulate wealth and then pass it on to your gen- to your children and to later generations, and you know that wealth uh kind of accrues over time, and now we have uh, an incredibly large wealth gap that limits people's mobility um, and where they can live um, uh, even more and there's also these you kind of self reinforcing co- uh consequences of segregation like the segregation of of information and you know kind of what neighborhoods people even know about mm. but it's you know i i'm I'm really happy that there is a rapidly growing body of work in this uh in this field. Uh and I've been I've been in conversation with, with Thomas torres about um about the uh you know the kind of differences in our in our findings. And hopefully hopefully we'll have an answer for you uh in maybe <laughs> a year from now. But uh uh you know it, it it seems incredibly clear that Hulk maps did something. You know, my work is a small part of this growing body of research that shows Really profound impacts of these maps, but at the same time, is you know the specific mechanisms which the social scientists uh, really kind of stress over are are kind of unclear. Uh, I'm working with a team of uh, graduate students here at, at NYU, Riley Sando and Kate Thomas, to find more data on on lending specifically. But I'm also really interested in how uh, Hulk fits into other. Historical processes you know, we've had massive social and economic and culture cultural and geographic changes since these maps were made in the late 1930s, uh, including of course the, the banning of housing discrimination and redlining you know lightly enforced of course but uh, you know one of the things that I really strongly believe and and this is not an original thought um, is that Hulk helped set up Um, subsequent processes or kind of set them in motion, um, or Mm. helped direct them in discriminatory ways. So for example, maybe mid century zoning policies were implemented differently in places that had maps and in places that didn't, it's possible that these maps, and the effects that I'm finding, uh, you know, are that the effects are less about housing than it is, about something else like schools, maybe, uh, or congressional districts or commercial mm-hmm. in, in uh, development. So and this is, uh, this really going to excites me, there's, there's so much more work that needs to be done. And I'm, I'm really happy to be part of this, uh, of this
1: conversation. Got your career laid out for you. <laughs> <laughs> that is exciting. I'm, I'm curious, I mean, back to this, uh, like the idea of selection bias in terms of which places get get mapped and which places don't, I wonder if there would be other ways or whether you've thought about how to kind of get at that question, just looking at, you know, other kinds of data on racial animosity or kind Mm -hmm. of like how racist local leaders were in different cities at the time and kind of trying to correlate that with with getting mapped or not.
2: Yeah, no, there's, um, so I have been trying to think about this and I know that there are many other people who are in uh, more advanced Stages of this, uh, which I'm I'm mm-hmm. happy about, is understanding. And this is related to your question earlier. And kind a of variation in in appraisers' mm-hmm. decision making. So, for example, you know, if you could find a measure, you could estimate a measure of the racial animus of appraisers on the city level. Mm-hmm. You know, that measure is likely to be predictive of future outcomes. Right. And you know that could really give uh, help you know provide a lot of insight into this this mechanism question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there it's possible that there is that there are archival records you know correspondence between appraisers or between Hulk and and local real estate concerns that we that we mm-hmm. don't know about. Mm-hmm. And you know there are I think it's I think it's possible just to kind of pinpoint the. The, the critique of all this work is possible that there, you know, there were plenty of vectors of discrimination that were well in place and well underway before Hulk. Right. But, you know, the, the counterfactual is that billions of dollars of federal investment in segregation and reorganizing an entire financial imp- imp- market had had no impact. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I just right. I find that just <laughs> like impossible to believe. Yeah. Um yeah. And, you know, I, I also tried really hard to
1: make the findings go away and, (laughs) and, and and couldn't. So, yeah, um, no, there's, there's clearly good social science there. What, um, people have said like, so is this, is my history of this correct? That like, no one had written about Hulk maps until Ken Jackson found them in a basement somewhere and kind of like (laughs) going to this, like seek, like, did, did people see these at the time and how prevalent was their kind of visibility? I wonder if you know more about that. I assume you know more about that than I do. Um, I,
2: you know, I, I know maybe a little bit more, uh, and I'm still in the process of of, of learning because I'm going through some of the archival data myself. That that's the data that's available online, and this is the, mm. the way we do research in, during the pandemic. But my understanding of the history, uh, and this is, I, you know, I found this again in the archival records as well as in like newspaper and magazine reporting uh, at the mm. time that there was quite a bit of uh concern among civil rights groups that these programs were uh were discriminatory, mm-hmm. and so you know people knew at the time what they were doing you know the fHA was sued, and it you know it's likely that the the fact that we don't have any fHA maps today is because they were they destroyed evidence. During a discrimination p r
1: aid
2: right right um you know we have one map left of, sh- of wow, Chicago yeah. that's the only one uh and lending records also don't seem to exist anymore uh which also seems hard to believe that they that they never did mm-hmm. but uh you know I think that Ken Jackson is probably the first published social scientist to to, to write about um uh, mm-hmm. the impact of these maps, but
0: certainly people. At the time, we're um, uh, organizing around them. Good reminder that academics and researchers are not always the most on top of these things. In well, the and I time. think I think it's not surprising that that the white <laughs> academy
1: ignored this for yeah. the middle of the, the whole middle Absolutely. of the twentieth century, right? Right,
0: right. Okay, so you know you go to great lengths here uh, to show this association between whole appraisals and racial segregation, and and do so really effectively, and you've been. Again, very humble about kind of the limitations and, and how much more there is to learn here. But I'm curious to hear kind of some of the, for things you haven't addressed already, what are some of the criticisms you've you've received? And if you're trying to kind of steel man your own position here, or at least, you know, even if you're not fully standing behind, like everything in this paper is definitely true no matter what, um, if you are trying to, to make that case, um, what are some of the criticisms you've heard, and how do you respond to those?
2: Yeah, so I think that there are two broad criticisms that are that overlap quite a bit. Uh, the first is the you know the endogeneity concern that there is you know something inherently different about cities that were appraised and cities that that weren't that is uh, is the reason that they became more segregated over time, mm-hmm. uh, and I. You know, hope that my and you know, of taking advantage of this imperfect implementation of the of the mapping guidelines allays some of that concern. And the, the other, uh, again, kind of largely overlapping critique is that these policies didn't do anything new, that, you know, banks were they were redlining before they before that term was invented. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was plenty of mortgage discrimination that existed beforehand, uh and that's certainly true. But, you know, it, it again, it seems quite clear, uh it, you know, I'm not the only person who's saying this now, that these that these maps had a causal effect. Uh and, you know, it, again the counterfactuals that these huge programs that created the American homeownership society and explicitly discriminated against people of color had no had no effect uh on racial inequality and that, you know, that just doesn't that
0: doesn't make any sense. Can you talk a little bit about the the difference you observe between um impacts in the south and the rest of the country? Yeah, so
2: I find a a much stronger effect among cities in the south than in the rest of the country. Um, you know, it's a this, the effect is statistically significant for for what that's worth, but it's, you know, I I I I think that it's um I feel less confident about it than I do about the the overall effects. I mean, mm-hmm. the historical narrative of it makes sense. You know, there was more explicit resistance to civil rights and and, and anti uh, and housing anti housing discrimination efforts in the South, and there wasn't in the North, but there was plenty of that in the North um, as well. And so, I uh, you know, I, I once we kind of get into this kind of regional differences piece, uh, I become a little bit more concerned about the the endogeneity. But uh, you know, the the effect is there and it's uh it's quite big. The impact in the South was like twice the the size of uh, the impact in the rest of the country, uh which is really is, is really quite is quite
0: big. So near the end of the paper, you consider some counterfactuals, one of which assumed that Hulk had just never existed. And the other assumes sort of the opposite, that we adopted a anti-racist integrationist housing policy agenda instead of the discriminatory segregationist policies we actually had. And, you know, I realize anytime I start asking on this podcast about forecasts, projections, right, speculation, right. all researchers are are hesitant to do this. Yeah. Um, but it's in your paper, so I feel like it's fair game. <laughs> you know, what would you want to have seen from that anti racist counterfactual you know I think we can take it as a given that f h a would not have engaged in in redlining and the promotion of racial covenants as they did that the g i bill would have been available to re- veterans of all races um and ethnicities, but what else would you be looking for out of this so full disclosure this section of the
2: paper was not in the original draft, and I added it. Um, on the insistence of one of the um, (laughs) anonymous reviewers. And I'm, I'm really glad that I did, um, because it's, it's, it's uh, the part of the paper that I get the most questions about from, uh, from journalists, especially, um, because it it kind of is is quite uh, straightforward. And it's something that I Plan on incorporating into
0: future papers as as well. Um, because you don't, you you don't get a lot of questions about research design on the, from the journalists. Not all, not always, (laughs) but, um, you know,
2: I, I, just a quick complaint, uh, tangent about (laughs) academic publishing. You know, it's, we are so often told to be so conservative and narrow with our conclusions, which oftentimes, makes the research kind of contextless. Um you know I do this research because I care about policy. So if you know, if we I, if I'm not able to say something about policy uh and what you know, policy what good policy could have looked like or the impact that good policy could have had then you know I, I feel like the the work that I do isn't isn't as useful. Mm-hmm. But to your question there are there are there are many things that a policy could have done to advance an anti-racist agenda. Uh, it could have, or it could have, you know, encouraged financing of affordable housing in wealthier neighborhoods. For example, through rewarding rather than penalizing neighborhoods that had both single-family and multifamily homes. Uh, it similarly, could have rewarded neighborhoods for being integrated rather than referring to it as um, uh, as it was uh, referred to on the uh, and the appraiser's document says as, as infiltration, mm-hmm. they could have specifically encouraged lending uh, on affordable terms to to African Americans. And you know, interestingly, so I've been reading through uh, the Federal Housing Administration's archives recently, and at the start of these archives, which is the first ones in 1935, uh, these annual reports, they are you know, strongly encouraging. Restrictive covenants and exclusionary zoning, and then they stop doing that once the Supreme Court said that um, restrictive uh, covenants were illegal um, in um, uh, uh, in Shelley versus Kramer in is that 1948. and then uh, after that decision, all of the FHA uh, annual reports start claiming that they care about minority homeownership and that they're encouraging minority homeownership um, with no data. Of course they have no they have no data and to, to black up those claims. But anyway, you know, these policies, FHA and Hulk could have fought discrimination in lending through hiring black employees or audits or data collection. You know, we have the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act now that requires lenders to provide data on mortgage applications and could have implemented something like that. But you know, again, going back to something that we, we talked about earlier, the original sin of all of this, to you know borrow a famous phrase, is the is the conflation of race with with capital accumulation. Uh, and right, you know, I think a lot of this
0: damage would have been avoided if it if Hulk simply didn't do that. I mentioned you, you know, if, if you want it, you've got a lifetime's worth of research to do on all of this. And I know that this paper, even that we're talking about, is not even your most recent one on the subject. So just curious if you could kind of talk a little bit about, you know, your paper with uh, Daniel Aronson, Daniel Hartley, Boshkar Mazumder, and Patrick Sharkey that compared socioeconomic outcomes um, for people living in Holt and non-Holt cities. So not just how segregated are they. But actually, you know, how how are people's lives going in these places? What would you find there? And, you know, what's what what does the future hold for your research?
2: Yeah. So um, the uh, that group of economists, uh, Dan Aronson Hartley and Dan Hartley and, and um uh wrote a, a really good paper on the neighborhood level impacts of, of redlining on on racial segregation and, and home values and credit scores, etc., uh, and so Pat Sharkey, uh, who's a collaborator of mine, and I uh, kind of reached out to him. Uh, reached out to them to see if there were kind of other outcomes that were um, worth looking at. And so we kind of applied the method that they innovated in their uh, in their paper, uh, looking at kind of buffers around uh, around neighborhood grade boundaries. So like boundaries between C graded neighborhoods and B graded neighborhoods, and then C and D neighborhoods. Um, and we looked at a large range of outcomes, including the likelihood of, of upward mobility across generations, incarceration, poverty, having a, a, a single parent um, or having a kid as a, as a teenager, et cetera. And we found a pretty consistent pattern across all of these outcomes that the likelihood of having a positive outcome was significantly lower
0: in redlined neighborhoods. You know, I like this kind of paper just as a compliment, because it it sort of illustrates what, you know, the Kerner Commission report 50 years ago stated that, you know, the segregation is not this harmless thing. There are actual negative consequences for people's lives beyond the the isolation itself. So I think that's a really important um, follow up. Anything else you want to add before we let you go? Yeah. So I think that this work makes two broad
2: arguments. Uh, the first is the importance or centrality of, of public policy in shaping opportunity. Uh, right. These, these policies made homeownership possible by making it cheaper for tens of millions of Americans. And, you know, homeownership skyrocketed from the low 40% to the mid sixty uh, percent, because of these policies, and flowing from that is uh, a real uh, importance of acknowledging the intentionality behind these programs. This is where the we built this part of the of the title of this paper comes mm-hmm. from. That you know, this the racial inequalities that we see today, whether that's segregation or incarceration or mobility. This was all intentionally constructed through through public policy and i think that this sheds light on the the kind of the scope of the problem and the the bearer of responsibility which is the you know a kind of collective responsibility and therefore a a
0: real moral uh, need for a remedy professor jacob faber thanks for being on the show Thank you. This is great. Yeah, I wanna I wanna thank you for
1: your service. I know these uh, <laughs> data-intensive projects are unrecognized in terms of how much painful work go into <laughs> it. So I think it's extremely we're, we're, the research community is grateful to to you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, highlighting these things that people we're here, here to
0: recognize. recognize. <laughs> thank you. You can read more about Professor Faber's research and find our show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends and colleagues where to find us. We release a new episode every two weeks. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. You can find Pavo there at El Pavo. Thanks again for listening to the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. See you next time.